Hey, everyone. This bonus episode is our last of 2020, and I am really excited about what we have planned for 2021. But I need your help to get those episodes into as many ears as possible. So my end-of-year request is that you share the show. Every time people do this, I see a bump in our downloads. And for an indie podcast like this one, that's a big deal. So you can share the show directly with a friend, we love that, or share it on social media. That's what I'm asking of you. An email, a text, a tweet, a Facebook post, if anybody still uses Facebook, to help more people find our show. Thank you in advance, and let's get into it. Welcome to Access, a podcast about abortion. I'm your host, Garnet Henderson. Today, I'm bringing you a bonus interview with Molly Shaw, who wrote an article for The Real News about the special treatment that anti-abortion protesters get from the police. Molly's article was published on the same day that I published episode five of this podcast, which was all about protests and harassment at abortion clinics during the pandemic. So that's how we connected. Molly's article focuses on four cities, Minneapolis, Kenosha, Louisville, and Portland, and directly contrasts the way that police have treated Black Lives Matter protesters with the way they've treated anti-abortion protesters in those cities. She also delves into some long-standing connections between anti-abortion violence and white supremacist groups. If you haven't listened to episode five, I would recommend going back and doing that now, because we do reference it a few times in our conversation. But without further ado, here's my interview with Molly Shaw. My name is Molly Shaw. I'm a writer and I live in Berlin, Germany. Um, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. And when I was there, I did a lot of reproductive rights activism. Um, I started Ask Bevan About Your Vag, <laughs> about my vag, where we sent like uh, questions to our governor who was really interested in our and our bodies, apparently. <laughs> um, and I did some other stuff with Planned Parenthood and things like that. And then I also was a legal observer at um, EMW, which is was the last clinic in Kentucky. Now, actually, Planned Parenthood has um, another clinic that opened in March, maybe. And then I um, wrote an article for The Real News. And so you wrote about how anti-abortion protesters get special treatment from the police. And specifically, you compared that to the way police have reacted to the Black Lives Matter protests that happened across the U.S., particularly over the summer. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what you found there when you compared those two things. Sure. Um, I think the main thing that I saw was that when you looked at the two things, there was a lot of talk about how the police were being very hypocritical and they weren't going after protesters that were in front of abortion clinics and they were going after Black Lives Matter protesters. And I think that I can understand that impulse to say it's hypocritical because it certainly feels hypocritical, but it's actually very consistent. It's the police are there to uphold 
the white patriarchal power structure. And one good way to do that is to go after people who are protesting the police in particular, but also white supremacy. And and then another way to do that is to try to control the bodies of pregnant people. So it's it's very consistent kind of thing. So when you looked at it, you saw this big discrepancy. Like every, I looked at four cities. I looked at kind of overall and then I focused on four cities. But when you looked at the data, you could see that the police were very aggressive against Black Lives Matter protests in the city. And when you talk to people though, that worked at clinics and stuff, you, you in every city um, saw that there was a strong presence outside the clinic Oftentimes they were obstructing. Um, oftentimes there were assaults. Oftentimes there were, you know, loudspeakers, all kinds of things that you were seeing people complain about at Black Lives Matter protests and were being used as a pretext for violence there. Um, that police basically, I think that like I talked to f- in those four different places, I feel like only one place said that like the police ever gave anything, even a citation. Like, you know, I mean, like, and no one ever got arrested. They did say that there was like um, one situation in Louisville where, um, and this was several years ago, where they literally laid in front of the door and like blocked access to the entrance. And apparently that went on for like two hours almost before they arrested anyone. You know, I mean, they were blocking access to patients trying to get into the last abortion, you know, place to get an abortion in Kentucky at that time. And, um, you know, I mean, the police, and then when they did arrest them, it was very like congenial and like, we understand why you're here and like, we support you. And that just, you know, is not the experience that people are having at Black Lives Matter and racial justice protests anywhere. Right. And I heard a really similar story when I spoke with Laura Chellian uh, of Northland Family Planning in Michigan, where they had a clinic blockade this summer where people physically blocked the entrances to the clinic. And it took about an hour and a half for the police to start making arrests, even though the staff was saying there's a federal law and they're violating it right now. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that law, which I do mention in the episode. It's called the FACE Act, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. Yes. Um, so that law was passed in the in the 90s. Um, it's through in the Clinton administration. And it's really like I've, the only real abortion legislation that comes after Ronald Reagan, basically, that I can think of on a federal level. Um, you know, that's like protecting abortion. And it's basically sets up the you can't and it's not just for abortion clinics. It's um, it also applies to religious institutions because that's how they got it in there. And, it you know, it makes it a, a federal crime and you can there's criminals penalties and there's also civil penalties for for um, blocking these things. It's very rarely used, um, I would say, particularly since the Bush administration, Bush two administration, it's basically been used very sparingly. And when it has been used, it's almost always been civilly. Um, there's some exceptions, I'm sure. And when you look at situations like um, clinics, like the one in Charlotte and the one in, uh, which I think you talked to, to in, in your episode and then um the one in louisville as well which is the one i'm more familiar with i mean you're talking like they're violating the face <laughs> like there's there every day they are like you know they are consistently um you can see pictures that they post they are blocking entrances they are getting in people's faces they're um 
you know, they're blocking sidewalks, they're doing anything they can. And like, you know, it might move really quickly, particularly because they have really good escorts there that help people get in and they know how to kind of navigate it. And so it's sort of become just like this rote thing that everyone does at clinics. It's like, oh, we have to get people in and we have to get them out. And, you know, they're violating this, but what are we going to do? You know, like if you, what are you going to do? Like the first person, like they won't let me in and you're going to call the cops. Um, And that is something I want to talk about, about calling the cops, because I don't think that's a good idea. Like, I don't want like my article, even though it is saying that the cops do not respond to this. Like, I don't think calling the cops is like usually a good idea really ever, but particularly in front of these things, because I think the cops are not because they are not there they are there to uphold the white supremacist patriarchal power structure. So calling the cops in these situations oftentimes does not help um, people at abortion clinics, like staff or escorts or patients, because they end up either doing nothing, which is the most typical response, or, you know, I mean, sometimes like, because particularly um, people who walk in like a company, people who accompany people, men usually, to abortion clinics. Um, I mean, sometimes they get aggressive with, which is understandable, like why they would get aggressive with um, the protesters. And I've heard on numerous occasions those men being charged or those men having, you know, like a, there was a situation in Louisville where there was a push and I believe somebody was charged. Um, and so I, I don't think calling the cops is necessarily the best idea or maybe ever a good idea, but... It's just a total discrepancy as to how any of this is going to be treated. It's like I try to think of like taking my kid to like the pediatrician and like somebody blocking the entrance. Like, what would you do? (laughs) Like, I mean, like, clearly that would feel unlawful to you, like that somebody was blocking. And even if you had to like shove around them or yell at them to get out of your way, it would be like a horrible experience. Like to do that and like to think that like oftentimes abortions are done when people are stressed and there's like a lot going on off there's a time limit you know like sometimes they have to go back to clinics twice um sometimes more than that to like get it so it's just a very high stakes situation to have these protesters outside sure and in addition to those face act violations you know i heard a lot of stories of protests violating um some of the COVID safety orders that have been issued in different states and local municipalities. Um, and also, you know, no no enforcement happening on that front either. Not breaking up large gatherings of people, not asking people to put on masks. No, and even though that was used as a, like, common reason why Black Lives Matter protests were getting police response, although every single one I've ever been to, like, has been, like, people protect there are other people, um, but in front of abortion clinics. And I mean, like, you know, there's a divide in this country that's clear, like where people who aren't wearing masks tend to be right wing because of the way that somehow masks got politicized. Um, and so these are right wing protesters that are in front of these abortion clinics. And a lot of times, I would say the majority of times they're not wearing masks and they're very close to people. And I mean, also we're talking about pregnant people a lot. Of, you know, a lot of these people are pregnant. So it's just like so hypocritical to be like, I'm pro-life. And it's like, you're physically obstructing a pregnant person and you're possibly making them ill. So if like, what is your goal here? And I looked at the Armed Conflict Location and Event da- Data Project, it's ACLED. Um, that's where I got a lot of my statistics and they were really nice and sent me for each of the cities. And you're just talking about like 95% of these protests were 
the racial justice protests were what they would call peaceful. And like, to me, actually, they have a like sort of narrow definition of peaceful because basically they were considering any property damage is not peaceful. And to me, it's like properties aren't, property isn't people. So, but even if you take their narrow definition of peaceful, like um, 95% of Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. There was no like obstruction of anything. There was nothing happening. It was peaceful. And one in 10 were getting responses by the police. And in some of these cities, like in Minneapolis, I think uh, it's like 60% were getting like police response. And by police response, they mean like kettling, um, which is like when you trap a bunch of people into an area and then usually use tear gas, paintballs. Um, There was like in Portland in particular abductions off the street by um, who knows, (laughs) who knows who did that really in Portland. Um, And, and you just, like, it's just such a contrast to how how any other protesters were being treated because they the ACLED was saying even um, the the COVID um, there were all these COVID protests by right wingers and you know some of them are really rhetorically violent um, like with like stringing up people and then later that came out that some of them were trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan and they they had very low police response to you know like compared to. Um, any of the Black Lives Matter or racial justice protests anywhere in the in the country. So it's just a it's just a, a huge gulf. And and you see that kind of rhetorical violence among anti-abortion protesters too. I mean, there were audio clips that I listened to for the episode that I felt like I couldn't play in full um, because. They were so disturbing and so violent, um, and that is what people who work at abortion clinics and escort at abortion clinics and go to get abortions at these clinics are hearing when they're coming in and out. And the problem is that's connected to a very real history of violence, which is something you also mentioned in your article. So I'd love if you could say a bit more about that. Sure. Um, well, I looked at sort of like the history of um anti-abortion violence um, and, it, and and its ties specifically to white supremacy, because my view is that they're all kind of tied together. Um, and I looked at the National Abortion Federation releases every year um, statistics about um, violence at clinics, and it's very high. Um, so since it's 1977. So there's 11 murders, 26 attempted murders, 42 bombings, 189 arsons, and then 11,905 incidents of clinic vi- violence. Um, and then that that's like violence, like the high level things. But then also if you just add obstruction, harassments, threats, and picketing, which outside, outside of some of these clinics is just daily, um, it's 714,076. It's just like, I mean, to me, that's like such a high number. It's just really, and police response, basically. I mean, I'm assuming they respond to murders, but other than that, it's just very low. <laughs> like, you know, and, and a lot of times, like, even with like the higher incidence of violence, like, is not people aren't getting prosecuted. Things aren't, aren't always going all the way through. Um, you have like ties to, um, the white supremacist movement. And you even see that like recently um, where there was um, the new feminist group. What's the new wave feminist 
um, leader. She's it's like the I like call them like the hipster pro life people or whatever. But one of their leaders was like tied to like ethno nationalist groups, and and so there's all these like very strong connections. And when you see the people that like like they frequently the protesters at abortion clinics will then go protest at Black Lives Matter and racial justice protests, um, or or um, the ones where I always used to see them as pride protests. They would constantly be there and you counter protest those things. So it's the same people. Um, and there's just like a lot of the, um, particularly the murders that happened in the 90s were, were tied to skinhead movements and to this, um, to various right-wing groups. There's a group called the Army of God. That's the, and they, um, you know, they, they have ties to a kid, the 1982 kidnapping, uh, the attempted murder of George Tiller, um, the Atlanta Par- Olympic Park bombings, which are tied to Eric Rudolph, who would also bomb two abortion clinics. Um, and then they even you know, a tie to um, Robert Deere, who is the um, the Planned Parenthood shooter in Colorado, had some ties to the Army of God. It was sort of how substantial those were, I think, is a little bit in, in dispute, but he claimed he had ties to the Army of God. Um so it's just, it's really, and it, to me, that just all kind of like builds on, like, this is very consistent. Like, this is not, like, this is a, a, a mission that is not just about, like, it's not just about abortion. It's about control of, like, a, a, of, our, of a society that's white, that's patriarchal, that's heteronormative that's cisnor you know it's it's the this particular control it's all tied together and that's why you see these people involved in all these various right-wing organizations like you don't you see all this overlap and that's because it's all about the same thing it's not about different things and I think that's like one of the really good things about like the reproductive justice movement is you look at it more wholly you look at the entire um reproductive justice is not just about abortion it's also about black lives matter because like if you can't protect your body if you can't protect your child who's walking who's walking you know and get shot by a police officer then that's the same thing as you can't access a clinic because it's all about the ability to like make decisions for yourself and control your body and and protect your family and however you want, you know, like to, to have that safety and then to have that autonomy over your own body. And I looked at um, this book called The Police Power. Um, it's Patriarchy and the Foundations of American Government by Marcus Dirk Deber. And he talks about paterfamilias, which is the idea that the um, state would govern um, the citizens the same way that a father governs the family. And that's how American justice is set up. Like that is the like basis for the American justice system is it's set on this idea of paterfamilias. It's like, so it's ingrained. When we talk about systemic racism or systemic sexism or systemic misogyny, like that is literally what it is based on. Like the entire system is based on this idea of like, we control our citizens like a father controls his family and like not a nice father (laughs) you know like it's very like they mean like you know like I have control over my women I have control over my children and I can you know have control over the bodies in my family is there 
Anything we haven't talked about yet that you want to add? Anything I didn't ask you that I should have? The, the other thing just about paterfamilias that too is that like, it's kind of tied into this like hyper masculinity you see in the police force. And then like, it's about personhood and who has personhood and like typically who's denied personhood and society is black people. Like, I mean, literally in the constitution are denied personhood and then also women, um, or have been denied personhood in other groups. And so then when you talk about like the combination of that, you know, pregnant people are not people because like you get to control their bodies and black people you can shoot because they are not considered people to like this, like society, like how the society looks at them. It's like a level of personhood that's lower. And um, it's just all kind of the same thing. You know, it's all the police, I feel like very much respond to Everything is like, who do we control and who do we protect? And, you know, their, their decision is based on how the society is set up. Thanks so much to Molly for joining us today. Her article is linked in the show notes. Access is produced by me, Garnet Henderson. Our logo is by Kate Ryan, and our theme music is by Lily Sloan. Don't forget to share the show with your friends. You can also help people find us by leaving a rating or review. And please subscribe to Access wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter and Instagram at AccessPod, and you can donate to the show by visiting glow.fm slash a podcast about abortion. That's in the show notes as well. A full transcript of this episode is available on our website, apodcastaboutabortion.com. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm wishing you health and safety and something that makes you smile. See you in 2021.